Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day, a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome. I'm Royful Brown. This is Mid-Atlantic, uh, the show which looks at the news and the views from outside the land from the perspective of the other. That's our normal MO. Today, though, uh, we're having one of our deep dive conversations. Today's guest is Calvin Robinson, a notable figure formerly associated with GB News. Known for his provocative stance in the UK media landscape, Robinson is not only a clergyman, but is also a vocal critic of liberalism and the metropolitan elitism probably pointing his finger at me i don't know he's outspoken against what he perceives to be the agendas of social justice warriors and critical race theory while championing brexit and a traditional interpretation of the bible in the context of recent events at gb news lawrence fox an actor turned political activist was dismissed following widespread uh, criticism of disparaging remarks about journalist Ava evans these comments sparked a considerable uproar leading to termination from the network. Calvin Robinson also served as a host on GB News. He faced a similar fate. His firing came in the wake of his suspension, which was prompted by his public support for Fox and another colleague, Dan Wooten. We're past the watershed, so I can say this. Um, show me a single self-respecting man that would like to climb into bed with that woman, ever, ever who wasn't an incel, who wasn't a cucked little incel. That little woman has been fed, spoon-fed oppression day after day after day after day, starting with the lie of the gender uh, uh, wage gap. And she sat there and I'm going like, if I met you in a bar and that was like sentence three, chances of me just walking away 
are just huge. We need powerful, strong, amazing women who make great points for themselves. We don't need these sort of feminist 4.0. They're pathetic and embarrassing. Who'd want to shag that? Well, look, she... Sorry, Sorry. I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to provide a, a touch of balance from her because she did actually respond to this earlier today, saying that she regretted her comments, but she didn't apologise. Yes, so, so, so there you go. <laughs> and she's a very beautiful woman, Lawrence. Very beautiful. Woman. There you go. Well, I'm probably not. I'm... Welcome onto the show. We spoke some time ago, well, a few months ago, and I think we had a thoroughly decent chat. I enjoyed it. Thanks, you, Royfield. I did too. It's good to be back on with you. Thank you for inviting me back onto your show. Well, it's a different show. Yeah, it, it is a different show. This is the one which I do twice weekly, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about political discourse. I learned a lot about giving people the space to speak, also listening. Though when I listened back, I talked over you quite a bit, but I but also that we can have conversations across the political divide. We can. Sometimes it bears fruit. I, I don't know if it bore fruit, but at least we could engage with each other. Yeah. We have to start with the thing which has put you in the news recently. Why would a man of the cloth who argues against premarital sex, says that it's a sin, support somebody who made, quite frankly, demeaning and facile comments? Who would want to shag that? Why would you defend that? You're wearing a dog collar now. Oh, okay. Interesting question. I'm not sure what any of those things have to do with each other. The dog collar, the remark, or the remark and premarital sex. But I'll give it a go. Sex outside of marriage is a sin. This is what the Bible teaches us, uh, because sex is something that happens between one man and one woman who are married under the eyes of God, open to being blessed with children for the greater good of the family, the greater good of the community, and the greater glory of God. In terms of language on television, we have certain standards that we should uphold, absolutely. The problem arises when someone says something that is perhaps immoral, but not illegal, especially when we don't all share the same moral compass. So then we have to decide, is this appropriate or inappropriate? And if it's inappropriate, why? And what are the consequences of that? My stance is simply that you cannot call yourself the home of free speech and then cancel three presenters for the words of one that you disagree with because essentially it wasn't actually about disagreeing with the words that were said. It was about the woke mob. It was about the reaction to the words, the hysteria around the words. And I've said on record many times that I don't think I, I don't think the words were appropriate. I wouldn't have used the words. However, I think it was hyped up because people want to take down the channel. We had people like Adam Bolton on Sky News saying, shut down the whole of GB News. Like, really? For one, one chap saying, I wouldn't shag her. Really? You want to close down a whole channel for that? Come on, let's get a bit of perspective in there. And actually, if you look at what was being said and why it was being said, which is important, people on the left often say, look at the context. So let's look at the context. This Ava woman that Lawrence was talking about uses those words quite often. So first of all, he was using her own words. Not that it makes it right. Two wrongs don't make a right. But secondly, he wasn't denigrating her looks. He wasn't objectifying her. What he was saying was, I, I don't see why any man would get with a fourth wave feminist. And that's what he said in the wider sentence. But of course, people just clipped the, the little bit about the S word. And his point there was that she's a misandrist. This is a woman who hates men. And the conversation that was being had was about men's mental health. 
and in, in effect about men's suicide, which is the greatest killer of men under 50 in this country. So it's a serious topic they're needed talking about, needed addressing. I think Lawrence let himself... Lawrence let himself... I really think, Kelvin, that it is a serious topic and it's something which has gone massively underreported. The level of male suicide, young male suicide and and mental health problems. But did he address it in a serious way? And the answer is no. If if you hadn't have interrupted me, I hadn't talked over me, what I was going to say is Lawrence let himself down and he let the side down by going to her level, going down to her level. You should never play the person. You always play the ball, right? He should have said, look, this is about men's mental health and twisted it back around and took the conversation to somewhere on a higher level, what needed to be addressed. And by taking it down to ad hominem, he ruins the whole debate. And actually, it was silly. The, the leadership of GB News is hardly a woke mob. I would have thought that they're somewhat fortified against us wokes. I, I suppose I'm one of them. We talked about that the last time, didn't we? That I'm part of that mob. Why did they succumb? Why didn't they have the testicular fortitude, the backbone? To say, no, God damn it, this is free speech. It uh, doesn't matter how facile, how derogatory, how, how demeaning, how undermining it is for the point that Lawrence Fox was making. We're going to stand by our boys. I don't want to spend the whole time talking about GB News because that's the past now. But to answer the question, they're not fortified against it, no, because they're a business and they have to make money. And to make money, they have to have advertisements. And to have advertisements, then you have to play the game. And every time someone says something controversial, people cancel the ads. They've got lots of balancing to do. Free speech is about being free to hear and say things that we might find offensive. It's not free speech if it's only things that we agree with. The very premise of the channel is the home of free speech. Therefore, if something is legal and not not breaking any laws or any broadcast regulations, then either you have to continue down that line of being the home of free speech or you have to change your brand. That's where I stand on it. I'd, I'd rather not talk too much about no, the, no, no. the former uh, management because they've got a lot to. They've got a lot and, of work. And to listen, do. and you, you have moved on, and this happened a few weeks ago. Now, my last question about GB mm. News before we move on to talking about life and, and, and the universe, which is you know, somewhat more encompassing than GB News. Why hasn't GB News become? Uh, UK's answer to Fox News, because that was the reason why it was set up to be this kind of constant no. right-wing drumbeat. Uh, no, it wasn't, it never. That, it was never the intention, ever. We had people like Andrew Neil on the board who would never have been involved in something that was supposed to be Fox News. It was never set up to be that. This was what the the aggregators on the other side were saying, oh my gosh, look, they're setting up Fox News. Like, First of all, that's not possible in the United Kingdom because we have Ofcom, which is a state-regulated broadcaster, state broadcast regulator, which any single TV channel has to abide by Ofcom regulations. And those regulations stipulate that we have to have impartial, due impartiality and balance. And that means that you can't have a heavy center-right or right-wing TV channel in this country. It just doesn't work. So it was never the, it was never the intention. The intention was to provide a voice to the silent majority. The intention was to provide a different perspective. And that means that having someone from the left, but also someone from the right, which is what the mainstream media doesn't do anymore, all the conversations around Brexit, you'd have five people that were Remainers and one Brexiteer, and they tried to find the, the craziest Brexiteer they could find to make the whole thing look silly. And that's the kind of thing that I think a lot of people in this country were fed up of and waiting for something different. That's what GB News was supposed to be, never Fox News. Have we maybe seen the peak of populism. It looks like the UK is about to, I'll say about to, in the next 12 months or so, there'll probably be a, a new party in power. And Keir Starmer, 
isn't a populist. Whatever you want to say that he is, he's not a populist. He's this sober managerial style of leader. And after Johnson, Brexit, Trust, are we seeing the end of populism in the UK? Well, least? Have we seen the peak of it? Define populism for me first. Fundamentally trying to grasp for simple solutions for complex problems, not exactly telling people the truth and, and, the, and the gravity of our economic, political situation, and having totems, things like culture wars, which distract us away from making hard economic decisions. Ah, that'd be a glib way. That'd be a glib way. Well, I'm glad you defined that because we wouldn't agree on the definition. If I went to the Oxford Dictionary definition, it would say a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. In, yeah, and in you know that what, sense, and I looked at that definition today as well. Yeah. But anyway, so, sorry, Cal. But this is the problem in our country, in, or in the West in general, in that the liberals will say, oh my God, populism is trying to dumb down politics and appealing to the, the lowest common denominator, and it's all fraud because these things are more complex, and actually we know what's best, and the people on the populist side would say, no, what we're doing is there is a metropolitan, there is an elite that are looking after their own interests and not the interests of the common folk, and the common folk feel left behind and feel disestablished. And populism is about plugging that gap and saying, let's meet the needs of the common folk. So in terms of the dictionary definition, I would agree that populism is not uh, has not reached its peak yet. And actually, I would say that we're going to see a lot more of populism in the future, especially after the next five years of a, of a Labour government, because people are going to feel even more disconnected once they've got a knight of the realm leading them down into the pits. As opposed to having a party that's been in power for, what, some 13 years, of which is festooned full of people went to Eton, Oxbridge, Harrow, and the vast majority of them have never shared the, the regular economic concerns of the average Brit. A few of them have, but the vast majority of them haven't. Yeah, that's same across the board. That's the problem. We have a unity party state. Pretty much everyone in Labour went to private schools too and send their kids to private schools too. So if your problem is with people in private schools, voting for Labour is not going to fix that solution. This is why, I mean, we're going to have more populism after the Labour government because people are going to realise that actually they're not going to make things, best, make things better, it's going to make things even worse because we're going to have less money in our pockets to live our lives. That's what socialism does. Is it socialism? Because you and I agree on, on some things that the average person in the street, working class, lower middle class, the average person in the street. Mm -hmm. so I'm not talking about the sons and daughters of, of doctors and up. Has suffered economically by any objective metrics in the last 40 years. Economically, their horizons have narrowed. Uh, less young people are, are buying homes. Um, People have um, a level of income, insecurity, professional insecurity, which was unforeseen some 40, 40 years ago. These are facts. These are not opinions. These, these are facts. And I, and I know that you agree with it. Just that our solutions are, are somewhat different. If we've had 40 years of this stuff, which fundamentally really comes in with, with Thatcher, how are we going to, how is having a constant drumbeat of memes, which are about dividing us, going to right Britain's economic ship? They won't. I don't know who's proposing that. Here's the thing which I don't quite understand, right? Because just before we, we came on air, and, and, I'll, and I'll say this for the listeners, we had a, a conversation which I really enjoyed at the, on another one of my podcasts, a, a little tiny podcast that I do, I think called Brown People. 
And you're an incredibly thoughtful person who is somewhat scholarly. And your, your media profile doesn't exactly belie that. And I think that Lawrence Fox is one thing. You're not him. With, with, with all due respect to him, somebody I've never spoken to, but the media appearances of him, um, he is somebody who uh, is somewhat reflexive and doesn't really think you do think, and you are somewhat well-read. But it appears to me that you're noted for the culture war stuff. And, and I think that does you a disservice, that you seem to relish those fights and you're known for those fights. And I just think problems that Britain is going through are much more profound than that. What are they? Goodness, I like it when, when you and I have conversations because our conversations, it's not, not me interviewing you. The fact that our politicians and our political class and our pundit class, and I'd put you in this, isn't honest enough, first off, to be open about the economic mess that Brexit has caused Britain. That's the first thing. Whether you think ideologically is a good thing or not, we should be able to say ideologically, I think it's a good thing, uh, but we have lost a, a small but significant proportion of our expected and actual GDP because of it. It has put certain stresses and strains on numerous in industries, which people necessarily hadn't, uh, some which experts had thought were going to happen, some which people hadn't thought was going to happen. And this is one of the reasons why the UK government doesn't have the fiscal move space for maneuverability around our relative economic downturn. I think that would be a really honest place for people to start. And then we can start to talk about income inequality and the fact that in the last 10 years, we have a significant proportion of Brits having to rely on food banks. I'm a little bit older than you, but not that much older than you. This was inconceivable in the 80s, in the 90s, and the early 2000s. And now we take it as a norm. Like countries fundamentally not working uh, on, in so many areas, and we don't have political class backed up by the pundit class that can actually say, we're going down the tubes if we're not careful. And we're fighting about things which are not, in the greater scheme of things, important or relevant to the vast majority of Brits. Okay. So I disagree with absolutely all of that. Right. And I think you, sh you show your balance accidentally. And I don't think you always mean to. When you say things like you're somewhat well-read, you don't know how well-read I am or not. But the, the inference there is that I'm not quite as well-read as I could be. I could be more intelligent. Yeah, I, I, there is an inference there. And I'll get to why. Because you say people like myself have to be more honest about Brexit. It's not about honesty. I never, ever lie. I try, at least, to always be truthful. And that's cost me jobs quite recently, too. Right. So it's not about being honest or not. It's about different perspectives. Now, I don't see Brexit as a disaster in this way you do, because I don't worship GDP in the way that a lot of people do, not yourself, but people on the left and right, see GDP as the ultimate measure of a company's, of a country's success. I think that's been our downfall for the last hundred years, actually, because there's so much more things that are important than the GDP of a country. People's well-being, people's happiness, their contentment, their fulfilledness, whether they feel they're contributing to society, whether they feel they're contributing to their family. There's so much, and faith yeah. is in, uh, important in them. However, when we focus on GDP, we think, okay, is this a success or not? Has it made more money for the country or not? No, it hasn't. Therefore, it's not a success. When actually I look at Brexit and I see we gained our sovereignty back. So yes, we still have low caliber politicians implementing 
low caliber policies, creating a mess, but there are politicians creating our mess. So we can, in ne- next year, we can get rid of them. We can get a whole new bunch of idiots in to create a whole new bunch of poor quality policies. But we get to say we're not governed by a country, a foreign country with politicians we have no uh, electoral power over. We, we live in a constitutional monarchy, which is a form of democracy. So that's important, our sovereignty, our independence. So Brexit was a success in that regard. And I don't think anyone has ever said that we won't see short-term downfalls in the GDP from Brexit. I've certainly acknowledged that all throughout. For me, that was a price I was willing to pay. And for many Brexit voters, that was a price they were willing to pay. Because GDP is not the be-all and end-all, and certainly not in the short term. I would rather have our independence, our sovereignty, our freedom, and have a short-term software on the GDP than the other way around. And then the culture wars, to say that first before we get to the culture wars, the pundit class is not part of the political class. People like myself are challenging politicians all day, every day. I challenge the conservatives more than I challenge Labour, actually. So I'm certainly not a part of their system. And we try at least to hold them to account. Someone has to, because the metropolitan liberal elite aren't doing, the mainstream media aren't doing. So the conservative commentators have a duty to do. But the culture wars are not a waste of time. They're not a secondary thought after GDP. They are the culture wars is a battle for the very soul of our nation. I believe that Great Britain was great. I believe that our country was fantastic. And I believe that we can be great again in the future. I don't think we're great right now. I think we've, we're slipping downhill and we're at a precipice. And it's a very dangerous time. We need to take a step back before we fall down that, that chasm. And we can, all, we can have disagreements on what's causing that chasm. But essentially, the culture wars or a spiritual war, especially for a Christian. It's about the very soul, the very heart of our nation, who we are as a people. And I don't think that there are many things more important than that. And I certainly don't think the GDP is more important than that. And to be fair to you, I don't believe that GDP is the be-all and end-all, which is the reason why I, I framed it, maybe said it somewhat inelegantly, that the constraints that the government has in terms of fiscal maneuverability is in part not only because of austerity brought in by Osborne in 2010, that actually has proven to be uh, shooting ourselves in the foot because it, it, it capped the growth of the economy uh, by not actually investing and, and supporting key, key, ind- key bits of the British economy and, and starving them. But then also Brexit. So there's a lack of fiscal bandwidth, for want of a better word, which the, the government now doesn't have. We aren't quite Bhutan, which has a, an index about happiness and whatever. And I, but I do believe that is important. But key to happiness is economic security. And mm-hmm. I think key to any at least right-leaning economic theorem is going to be the ability to aspire. And what is happening in our country is truly shocking. I, when we spoke before, we, we we talked about the level of homelessness which you which mm-hmm. we both saw and as Brits thought was shocking in, in San Francisco. Now, there is nowhere in Britain which has got to San Francisco levels where you see rows of tents. But we yeah. now are seeing tents. We are now seeing people on living on the streets in a way which is again inconceivable just fifteen years ago. Right. And I'm profoundly concerned and disturbed by that. And I don't see that we have, and I will damn both houses with this, a Labour Party and a Conservative Party, which is fundamentally saying Britain 
isn't working. To go all the way back to 1979 and that famous Archie and Saatchi poster, mm-hmm. Britain isn't working. Britain is no, not, not working in 2023. And you're right. Aspiration is the issue. The only, the only politician we've ever had that's really inspired aspiration was Margaret Thatcher, the one that you mentioned earlier. We need another Thatcher. We need someone else who's going to say, let's pick ourselves up by the bootstraps. Let's get out there working. Let's make better lives for ourselves, better lives for our children, than what, what we have for ourselves. That is what we need. Any, and, and this is where you and I then wildly disagree, because if you look at the levels of inequality, which are now endemic within Britain, Fundamentally, they start in the 1980s. It's Thatcherism, which deregulation and the fact that more wealth is controlled by fewer people and that trickle-down supply-side economics fundamentally didn't work. It meant that somewhere like London can be a fabulously rich and beautiful and cosmopolitan, if that's a good or a bad word, that's for you to decide place where you look at the centre of London and it is truly awe-inspiring, but not so much for Rochdale, not so much for Scunthorpe. The British economy became dangerously unbalanced because of, the that, because of Thatcher's policies. And while she talked about aspiration, actually what it meant for, for many people in the lower third economic percentile is that um, they had the basic building blocks which allowed them to have some level of security taken away. We don't have, as a nationwide thing, public transport at affordable levels for working people outside of London. That's the, the big irony. There are fundamental building blocks which we need to put back into British society to help people in the lower third economic percentile. And those were taken away by the woman who you lionised. I don't think that's true at all. I don't lie her. I think she was great on aspirations. I don't agree with everything she did. But I don't think the mess we're in now is the fault of Thatcher. I think it's pretty much everyone since Thatcher on both sides of the house. We have had the only only prime minister we've had that wanted to actually implement change and, and innovate was Tony Blair. And he innovated tremendously. I don't agree with the innovations he put in place, but he innovated tremendously. He made a, a large impact in this country. He's the only one since Thatcher to do so, really. But a lot of the problems we're seeing are the results pre-Thatcher. Look at the country, like the, the divide was much wider. People in the lower classes were genuinely poor. The working class was genuinely poor and, 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 and the living conditions were lower. The living conditions today are much higher and the, the poverty line has, has risen and the, the working classes are much richer than they have been in the history of our country. So yes, there is a lot of work to be done, but in terms of economics, things are better. But it always comes back to economics aren't the be-all and end-all. People are richer now. The poorest people in society have £1,000 phones in their pockets, but they're still miserable and they're still not able to contribute and they're still not able to afford a house. So there are still massive problems there. So it's not all about the economics. Hmm. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Has the Conservative Party completely failed Britain in the last 13 years? We have Rishi Sunak talking about being the change candidate. Number one is the prime minister. Number two, his party's been in power for 13 years in the last Conservative Party conference. Is it any surprise that the Labour Party is some 15 to 20 points ahead in the polls? No surprise at all. The, the Conservative Party doesn't stand for anything. They have become a managerial class, and that used to be the, that used to be okay. We used to elect Conservative governments where we wanted a steady hand at the wheel, someone to lead us without doing too much. However, that's not any more appropriate because the country is going to pot in, in many ways and we need strong leadership to make a change, to do, to innovate. If you ask any Conservative MP, what are they most proud of accomplishing over the last 13, 14 years? They will struggle to think of anything because they haven't. They've just been managing and that's not okay. But when they got into power, the country was already a mess from the Tony Blair and Gordon Brown government. So they haven't fixed any of the problems left behind by Blairitism. In fact, they've just maintained them. So yes, they deserve to be out of power. I mean, it's time for something new. Unfortunately, what's coming is even worse. But hopefully it will give the Conservatives time to actually find their centre again, to come up with a Conservative ideology, and then to campaign off the back of that. Because when they do, they when they set their minds to a campaign, they accomplish it. Look at Boris Johnson, get Brexit done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we've seen the, the results and the fruits of that. So if you're damning the Conservative record and agenda and very obviously you're not going to vote for starmer next election who would get your vote who's going to get your vote well i haven't even thought about that i don't know who i could vote for right now to be honest with you conservatives deserve to lose but i don't want labor to win and people in our country are tribal will only vote for laboring conservatives even if they continue to destroy the country between them we will never vote for a third option so we're stuck in a rut really um when i go out with lawrence fox for example his party polled the area that he was standing for general election. 70% of people agreed with him. How many of them voted for him? Not many. And this is the same with UKIP, the same with the Brexit party, the same with, I don't know, any of the smaller parties. People may agree with them massively. But when it comes to vote, we go, oh, am I a conservative person or a Labour person? Like we, We're stuck in these labels that we've given ourselves that mean nothing these days. I don't know really if that's true anymore. But being a child of the 70s, and the 80s, uh, let's say, deal with the 70s. That was absolutely true. Your working class, you voted Labour, full stop. There's a reason why there were those red wall seats, because people just generationally and tribally voted in that way. And yes, there's mm. some residue of that. But the 80s came along and there was the SDP and things got a, a bit cut weird. And if you look at the vote share of the two major parties in, in the UK, actually since the 70s, They've been trending downwards. It's our first past post system, which is papered over that. 
really and truthfully. Mm. I, I don't think there is the same tribal allegiance. And one of the things about Lawrence Fox, and I presume is, is a friend of yours, is he's not exactly the most consistent advocate for any meaningful political view because he's somewhat kind of erratic. And then you put that completely nutty to one side and you say, okay, so he was standing in that one seat. But what about the other 300 and odd? Uh, it's just an example. Look at the SDP, the standard where Reform Party stands in every seat. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Vote share has gone down, but that's voter apathy. So people either vote for their Conservative Party, vote for the Labour Party, or they don't bother voting. People aren't voting for a third way. Again, I don't know. Plaid Cymru does all right-ish in Wales. The SNP, I know they're taking a little bit of a kick in at the moment. They seem to do all right-ish in, in Scotland. They've been yeah, yeah. running Scotland for quite some time. There's numerous councils throughout England where the no, none of the two uh, traditional big parties have overall control and there are there's lots of local variants there. I think it's the first part. Yeah, local politics is very different to, to national politics, though. There's, there's, we, there's a how many MPs do we have in England that aren't either Labour or Conservative? This is the issue. And yes, Scottish politics is slightly different, but they have the SNP or Labour because the Conservatives got demolished there. So they still have the two-party system. As I said, it's first past the post system. That, that, yeah, that I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. And, and I don't think we're as tribal as we used to be. We wouldn't have had the 2019 election swing if people were completely and utterly tribal, people are voting on other identifiers. And it seems like we're going to have another swing in, in, the, in the 2024 election. So we're not as tribal. However, it's the first past the post system, which fundamentally is, is locked us into seeming like things that are never going to change. Yeah. But you ran before. Why, why don't you yeah. do it again? Who for? This is the problem. Who would I run for? You were just advocating for your friend Lawrence Fox's party, weren't you? No, not at all. I don't support any party. He's my friend, but I don't, I don't support his party in the, in the fact that I don't vote for any political party. I haven't prepared who I'm going to vote for in the next general election. Um, is, is it the case that you're sufficiently to the right of mainstream British political opinion that there just isn't really a home for you. Is that fundamental? That is the problem. And I think that's a problem for a large majority of people in this country. I think a lot of people are politically homeless because the conservatives aren't necessarily conservative. So people who are conservative have no one to vote for. And this is why we saw such a big number of people voting for parties like UKIP before. But even the the first-past-the-post system blocks them from getting any MPs, even if you've got like 15 million votes or whatever it was. It's just impossible. So yes, the Conservatives need to become Conservative again, which is why I think they need to lose this election and refine themselves. But in the meantime, it does mean we're going to be in hell with Labour, who want to do everything the Conservatives have been doing, but even worse. I always get confused by the label of right-wing and Conservative, because we see them as being synonymous, and they're actually not. To be a Conservative is, by its very definition, to believe in slow, gradual change, if, if change at all, and actually you want to conserve things. Radical right-wing politics is not about conservatism at all. No, but I don't think we have radical right-wing politics. I think the Conservative Party is centre-left. The Conservative Party is centre-left? Yeah. On what issues would you say, on what policies would you say that they are at all right-wing? Hmm. Right, right. In terms of where you are on the spectrum of the Overton so, window, 
Are you just completely well, throwing me for a loop? <laughs> Lowering inheritance tax. If you're looking at cutting standard tax rates, and fundamentally, that is your only real policy. So that's neoliberalism. That's not conservatism. So this obsession with taxes is neoliberalism. Look at any issue that's a social issue, such as immigration. Immigration skyrocketed on the conservatives up to a million net migration last year. An Englishman's home being his castle. So as you mentioned, we can't afford to buy our own homes. Any conservative government would be encouraging people to be landowners, to be homeowners. That is what that's a conservative policy. We have schools teaching kids that there are 99 genders, that white people are racist, and that you can change from a man to a woman. They are clearly not conservative ideas. Any area of life, we're not seeing any conservatism. Well, I, I, the church is about, to, the established church is about to bless same-sex unions. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, but there, you can't blame what the Church of England are going to do on the Conservative Party per se. Can but they've said, if you don't do it, we'll force it because you're part of our established state system. So there's some influence there. But the point is that we're not conserving anything. We're not conserving anything. We're not socially conservative in any way. And every now and then some red meat is thrown out there with some rhetoric, like Suella Braveman or Pretty Patel will say something and all the lefties will be like, oh my gosh, they're Nazis. And all the right, all the people on the right will, are you going to implement any of this? And again, nothing ever happens. Mm. So no one's happy. The left's not happy. The right's not happy. The politicians are probably the only ones that are happy because they get their cushy jobs but, and they don't actually do anything. Can I have as, as one of the takeaways when I post this podcast up that the Conservative Party is a centre-left party. Yeah. All right. They're Blairites. Everything that they do is following Tony Blair. And some people on the left would say that Tony Blair was a, a centre-right politician. But anyway. That's because the left has driven so far to the extreme left now, especially with the Corbynites and all of that. They're just Marxists. But Tony Blair was clearly on the centre-left in any measure of the word. Corbyn, he's gone. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. He isn't gone. <laughs> He does stand for a very proud tradition of the Labour Party yeah. being rooted in community. And I know we talked about communitarianism before, rooted in community and working class community. And, and that is a proud tradition. Without that, without those Fabians back in the day, etc., you don't have the Labour Party. This, you'd look at the roots of the Labour Party and it is this melding of Christian ethics with working class solidarity, which creates the cooperative Labour Party back at back in the day. And he's, wow. you know, very much part of that strand. The world has moved on. The world has moved on. And maybe some of his approaches and some of his views of how society works didn't quite, hasn't moved on sufficiently. I haven't seen any, any Christianity from the hard left. And when I, I worry when I see people like him saying he's friends with Hamas and we're seeing what they're up to this week. It's, that's a, a dangerous side of politics that people often ignore. Because they, they see the far right is scary, but the far left is just as scary in the shoehorn of politics. I don't know if Hamas is, is far left. I think they're a nihilistic, uh, theocratic. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean they're far left. The far left support Hamas. Okay, all right, all right. Moving away fr from the UK, Israel-Palestine. 70 plus years of the Palestinians being denied statehood. At the state of Israel, always in a constant readiness for war. How do we break out of that logjam? Wow. That, see, your questions are so loaded. <laughs> denied statehood by whom? What is the state that they're trying to 
a cl- claim. And Israel being in a state prepared for war? No, Israel is literally the only democracy in the area. It's surrounded by hostile territory, quite Islamic forces in every direction. It's prepared for defense. It's not prepared for war. And I think they're quite right to defend themselves in that kind of situation. I wouldn't want to be in that didn't situation. didn't say that they weren't. Israel's had a peace treaty with Jordan for the last 20-odd years, a historic one with Israel since the Camp David Accords in the 1970s. is coming to a, a level of understanding, if not a, a, a peace treaty with Saudi Arabia. It has peace treaties with Morocco, also with the Gulf states. Lebanon is not a security threat to the state of Israel. So it's wrong to say that it's completely utterly surrounded by hostile states. But what it is, what it does have is a restive population of Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank. Uh, that is a fact. And their lack of having a true viable state poses a, an existential security risk to the state of Israel, a country which has fought uh, numerous wars and has fought for the right to exist and should exist. So I'm not what anti-Israeli. Country? I'm not anti-Israeli at all. But I'm just interested in your view as to how this perpetual cycle of whether it's wars, intifadas, etc., how the Palestinians and the Israelis can break out of that. You clearly know more about the region than I do. I don't, it's not my area of expertise at all. So I don't talk about it on TV or anything like that for that reason. But all I know is the very basics that I discussed previously. And I think if I was a Jewish nation surrounded by Islamic nations, I would have protective measures in place. And that's as far as I go. When- Islam is a faith of conquest. And we see that all around the world, not just in Israel. We see that in our very homes right now when we see people marching on the streets supporting terrorists who have just kidnapped children and and beheaded babies. We see people with the flag out there supporting that and tearing down posters of people that are missing, that are hostages. This is not good. It's really not good. Can't you separate, though, Hamas and and what they did from Palestinian people? Yeah, but when you have a hostage poster up of a child that's gone missing because they've been kidnapped by Hamas. Are you suggesting that's the Palestinian people? Of course not. That's Hamas. So by tearing that down a poster, you're supporting Hamas. That's not good. Mm. So so there is no way of expressing support for the Palestinian people. And I would say, and the UN says, so it's not just me, in my opinion, their rightful claim to have a state a viable state. I don't know about this rightful claim for a state. I don't know about any, I don't know any of the nuts of the technical. Well, technical this, that, this, that's too much know, for me. The, but all I'll say is what we have to do is pray for the people, the innocent people on both sides. And that means the people on the ground because Hamas are terrorists. They are evil, but they are killing people. But they're killing people both in Israel and outside of Israel. And Gazans are, are falling victim to this. So we should pray for the innocents. Absolutely. No, no, we were in complete not agreement there. I couldn't yeah. disagree with one word that you said. I, I'm no supporter of Hamas. I, I first said they're somewhat of a theocratic, nihilistic organisation, so I'm not supporting them, but I am support, trying to support the uh, Palestinian people as much as I can. I did say that Hamas are theocratic, and I did mean that as a pejorative, but you're theocratic, aren't you? The fact that their organisation is imbued with their interpretation of the Quran, that worries me. But that doesn't yeah, necessarily worry do. you, does it? Because you're, right, you're it does, a man. Absolutely, of- yeah. Worries me more than anything. When people are fighting for the devil, but what can worry us more? Because they're fighting for the devil. What would you say they're fighting for? 
Listen, I'm no fan of Hamas. I'm no fan of Hamas. No, no, you're not. I'm just trying to gather. I'm worried. I don't know why I, you think I would support that. No, but it, the fact that they have this religious fervor, at least. Uh, but just because I'm religious doesn't mean have. I think that's what they claim to have. Sure. No. But just because I'm religious doesn't mean I think all religion is good. I believe Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Anything else is a lie. And some lies are worse than others because some lies are wicked. And I think what Hamas, what Hamas is fighting for is wicked. Therefore, I don't support it. I don't even think they're religious. Again, and I'm somebody who, I'm not religious. I'm a lapsed Buddhist. I grew up a Methodist boy. I drifted away from that, whatever. I don't so. even know. <laughs> How do you start from Methodism and end up in Buddhism? I don't even know, but carry on. You know what? Maybe when we have our third conversation, maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about my, my drift because you do a very good job of actually interviewing me on, on each one of my podcasts. The fact that there is an organization, let's forget Hamas per se. I only made okay. the link when we were talking. I've got no notes about this. So this is truly me thinking off the top of my head. An organization yeah. that at its heart is driven by religious conviction and they're trying to achieve that through political and violent means. Somebody who his faith is so important to them, i.e. you, you must and again, we're not talking about Hamas here, right? I'm not saying you support Hamas. I'm not putting yeah. any words in your mouth here. But you must be able to look at organizations like that and say, huh, you can take, you, re- religiosity can be used as a political tool. You can have organizations where it means something because we live in very secular times. People are fallen, right? So we're all sinners. So people are at fault. I wouldn't say the re- Religion is always at fault. I say people are, are most often at fault. And people often go, oh, religion is the cause of all, all wars. And of course it's not. And actually people are the cause of all wars. But the problem is you have to have a set of values. You can't live life without a set of values. It's just not possible. So it's about which values do, do you subscribe to? Now, they might be liberal progressive values or wokeness. They might be Islamic values or they might be Christian values. I happen to think Christian values are objectively good. And therefore I live by those values. That's as far as religiosity goes, in my mind. A reading from the Epistle to the Colossians. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You don't have a problem with the Prime Minister being a Hindu. It's a challenge because the Prime Minister, for example, at the King's coronation, reads the epistle and 
it's just been a given that we have a Christian prime minister because we're a Christian country. And this is the first time we haven't had that whilst there's been whilst there's been a coronation. So we had someone who is outside of the faith partaking in the service. Now a Catholic wouldn't allow that. That wouldn't happen in the Catholic Church. You couldn't have someone who's not Catholic reading the epistle or reading from the gospel. It's not possible. But because the Church of England is, is moist in that area, they did allow it. But it's a strange problem to have. Likewise, the Prime Minister is responsible for selecting bishops in the Church of England, because it used to be, of course, the Pope. And then we reclaimed that, the King reclaimed that during the Reformation, and that was passed on to the Prime Minister. So for the first time now, we have someone who's not even a Christian deciding who becomes the next Christian bishops. So there are, yeah, there are problems with it, absolutely. But that's because we are an inherently Christian country, both officially and informally, and always have been. And we're not used to or not prepared for a situation where we're not. Who is that a problem for, though? Because I've just listed a couple of examples. No, but who is it a problem for? Because Rishi Sunak, when he's choosing bishops, isn't making that decision by himself. He's going to be advised as to which bishops to choose. So he could be the he could be the most fundamentalist Hindu, but he's not making that decision in a vacuum. No, but he's not invested. He's not invested. He's not a Christian, right? So, of course, there's a conflict of interest there. I'm not saying he's going to make a bad job of it, but there is a clear conflict of interest, but objectively. That's not opinion. That's a fact. And Boris Johnson, what level of a Christian was he? Oh, I don't think we believe in levels of Christianity. Either you believe in Jesus Christ or you don't. We don't get to say you're a better Christian than that, that, that person. That's, because that, that's fair. Because the Christian that's faith fair. teachers were all sinners. Uh, uh, my, my guess, though, my guess is that Tony Blair, he was a Christian. Like, but he professed his faith. Not professed it. He, well, he famously said, we don't talk about God. But he said, I believe. Tony Blair was a Christian as much as Boris Johnson is a Christian. Yes. No. Sure. No, go on. Elaborate on that then. Because Tony Blair, it was part of his credo to say, I'm a Christian. Don't get, he didn't exactly push it down people's throats, right? He, he wasn't one of those. He wasn't a tub thumping, but he, he said, I do believe. I've never heard Boris Johnson talk about his faith at all. I have. I heard him say he's a Catholic, and I've heard him say he got married in a Catholic service very recently. Okay. Listen, I stand corrected. And again, <laughs> this, is, this is. I think, oh. if you're being honest, what you're getting at is that he doesn't live a moral life. And Tony Blair's life appeared more moral than, than Boris Johnson. I think, if you're honest, that's what you're getting at, it's which would be a fair assessment. But that's not a judgment of how Christian someone is. But you know what? I think that's part of it. That's part of it, right? And I always remember being struck by Blair that he was, at least in, in my lifetime, he was the first prime minister to say that his faith really meant something to him. Right. Thatcher, that, that, another one. I said, but you know what? You caught me on this because I'm <laughs> conflating, I am conflating other things. Thatcher mm. did say that. But I suppose I, I was a child during Thatcher. Where, so it was a bit like, ah, I was with Blair. I could actually vote by then. So it meant somewhat more. And whatever I want to think about David Cameron, he's not a bad guy. And yes, I'm loading this with, I think that Boris Johnson is different from other recent prime ministers, regardless of whether I, I agree with their policies or not. So, so, so you are right. Yeah, but, because but we, still... we see his sins. His sins are obvious. He's a famous adulterer, for one thing, which is quite blatant to all of us, whereas we don't see Tony Blair's sins. 
we're all not always, we saw his war crimes, but we don't, we don't always see his sins. So it's easier to think, oh yeah, clearly he's more of a Christian, but that's not how it works. Yeah, Listen, it's a fair point. And I'm, I'm on your territory here. So you can, you can swat away my ill-formed <laughs> thoughts very easily. But I'm still somewhat puzzled as to why it matters in terms of the nominating bishops, etc. Because what? there's a whole, there's the whole civil service, there's a whole state apparatus. No, they're not involved. Right, well, it's all down to who we are as a country, right? It's, it comes back to the issue of well, cultural wars. It's like, who are we and what do we want to be? If we are a Christian country, it would make sense to have a Christian leader. In, For example, the royal family cannot convert. By law, they have to be Christian. And in England, they are Church of England. When they go up to Scotland, they are Presbyterian. Somehow their denomination changes. But this is the law of the land because we are explicitly Christian. So it does matter. It makes a difference. So when there was all this talk years ago that Charles wanted to be defender of the faiths, yeah. that was an anathema to you, upsetting. That was shocking. Oh, yeah. Absolutely awful. As, as the supreme governor of the Church of England, he should be a Christian. He should be a member of the Church of England. Otherwise, we have to really look at the whole situation. Mm. During the coronation, which I found fascinating, robes for me devalued the ceremony. Also, it was the central role that religion played. And I know the history. I know the history. The glorious revolution and all of that and the fact that you can't have a, a Catholic king. I understand the history. But that, for me, felt very incongruous to the Britain that I know. And so why don't I, we, why do we bother with all that? Why don't we just get them sit down in an office, sign a piece of paper, and be done with it? You know what? It, it, it's a really good question because I'm no fan of Rishi Sunak, but I'm somewhat proud of the fact that his faith plays very little part of the political discourse. Don't get me wrong; there are some racists who are saying you can't have a brown person as prime minister, but for the most part, most people are a bit like meh about it. And the fact that he lo when he went into Downing Street, he lit little candles for Diwali. I'm not a Hindu. That for me, that moved me as, as a child of, 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 of immigrants. And, and my pet, my mother's a reader in the Church of England. That moved me that I so live in a, a question, country. Though. One second, that I live in a country where the prime minister can profess his faith and it's a minority faith. And most people, a bit like most people, a bit like, do you think? Do you think? Okay. So it's because it's a minority faith. I was wondering why you didn't appreciate the Christian faith of the coronation, but you appreciated his Diwali faith. It's because it's a minority faith. No, right? not at all. Not at all. I, I, okay, I, come on then. What is it? No. And again, you, you, uh, listen, we're we, we doing this thing where, where, where you're uh, questioning me. It's not that it's a minority faith, because I, I think that faith is important. I absolutely do. But you've just said you didn't appreciate the Christian faith of the coronation, but you did appreciate the Prime Minister's faith because it was Hindu. And it was, you said as an immigrant. So you identified as another rather than part of Britain as well, which is a problem. But So you're separating yourself from our culture, from our tradition. Oh, I'm saying ours because it's both of ours and all no, of but, ours. But you're othering yourself. No, I'm, I'm totally not othering myself because 
and maybe this is a point of where you and I diverge. And I think we might have said this before in our previous conversation. Go check out that podcast, Brown People, by the way. That's what we keep on <laughs> referring to as opposed to this one, which is mid-Atlantic. This country, our country, and I do see it as our country, right? I don't other myself in that regard. I think that what it is to be English and British, English is maybe slightly more problematic mm-hmm. in terms of what I'm about to say, is actually to be incredibly inclusive. Historically, it's been incredibly inclusive, whether it's Huguenots, whether it is Jews uh, fleeing from pogroms in the 19th century. Britain had a Jewish prime minister, Disraeli. Yes, he said, I'm an Anglican, but yeah, he's given away by his name, Disraeli. Political refugees ad nauseum came to Britain in the 19th century because it was seen as a refuge because it was seen as, as a, a relatively tolerant place, etc. Um, and that's before we get on to Windrush and people that might look like you and I and, 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 and their um, ancestors, etc. This, many of the institutions of this country are founded on principal traditions. I've got no problem with that. But one of those traditions, and this is where we maybe move from the Church of England and what you might see as a kind of mealy-mouthed way of talking about faith, this country's been relatively ecumenical. And, and I think that's wonderful. I quite like going to my mother's church. And I like the fact that it's also a bastion for community. And going into her church on Remembrance Sunday last year, and there was a little eight-year-old boy stood by the stone which had the names of the fallen in the First World War, which I presume are all going to be white, and he's a little black boy, and he's reading them out because he's now part of that community. And these were people who gave their lives, and they're recognizing that church. Profoundly moving for me. I'm not othering myself at all. Because... Without culture, without tradition, we are nothing but animals. And this is why the the Queen's funeral and the King's coronation was so important, because it's a glimpse into who we are by looking into our past and maintaining some of that for the future. And there were adaptations. A lot of people wore suits and then their gowns on top, rather than the old old goisters and whatever they used to wear. Sorry, garter and the old-fashioned dress. I can't think of the names right now. But So there were adaptations. Stockings and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I would say there shouldn't be any adaptations. I would say we should maintain the tradition because it's, it's a once in a lifetime for many people opportunity to see what Britain is and was at the same time. But other people have different opinions, which is fine. But I, I think to denigrate that is to denigrate our very core because it is, we are a Christian country. This was a Christian service. It, it brought 28 million people around the world to get together, not just in this country. It's unifying them, all of us, left, whatever. We're all looking for what, or we should be all looking for ways to unify us, bring us together, to unite us, because we live in a world of division. So that's why the funeral and the coronation were wonderful, and we need more of that. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> for somebody who's politically left or centre, I, I don't mind the monarchy, because I yeah. think, to, to your point, I think to have the oldest surviving political institution which predates Union, predates the Norman invasion, as a totem of continuity, I'm like, fine. But the monarchy does need to respond to the tenor of the times. 
And, and I would question gold carriages, especially in the, a country which is going through severe economic hardship and austerity. I think it sends out the wrong signal. It should have walked, right? So I'm, oh, I'm, that's a nonsense. That's such a nonsense. This is why when people say, oh, we shouldn't have any... We shouldn't have gold in the church. We shouldn't have big gold altars no, and, and no, chalices no, no, and stuff no, that, because people are poor. It's like, no, we need beauty. We need pageantry. And actually, these are the things that lift people's spirits. And the golden carriage is a prime example of that. People waited 12, 24 hours in line to see it and to see the king in it. You wouldn't see that. You wouldn't do that to see him in a taxi cab or something, would you? Come on. No, no, I, I, I didn't but, say taxi cab. I didn't say you should. I know, I know. Uber. But I'm call, call an Uber. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm saying. But, we live in different times. And the monarchy should not adapt to the times because you're assuming that the times are good. The times are not good. No, and I'm adapting to the times, the times are bad. Rings. Exactly, yeah, exactly so the, the, adapting to the times is bad. We need to keep the good things. That ceremony has changed. He doesn't ha- He doesn't wear a suit of armour to proclaim. Shame. What a shame. And you actually do have a helmet behind you. I do. I, 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 could, I love talking to you. I, I really do. <laughs> and and, I, and as I said a, a couple of times through, uh, through our conversation, I, I like the fact that you, you question me. Hopefully we, we can do this again. And our politics do, doesn't align. But actually what, what does completely align is a deep concern about the country of our birth. And, and we both appreciate its place and some of the, and, and some of the benefits of which it does accord us. There are many uh, countries and which do not have such a proud tradition as the, the United Kingdom. Where we might disagree is, I, I say, well, with some of that history comes a, a legacy of, of hurt throughout the world. But I, I take the rough with the smooth and I'm proud to call myself a Brit. So on that regard, Father Kelvin Robinson, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. And bearing with me whilst I threw at you ill-formed questions. And it was a good um, chat. listen, it's been lovely to have you on. Good people. This is you didn't have the regular panel with you in your ears today. Hopefully, you enjoyed this conversation. I do like this gentleman. I don't agree with his politics at all. Oh. I actually quite like him. <laughs> Why don't you just tell people what you're up to now and where they can find you on social media? I'm Calvin Robinson on all the social platforms. My website is calvinrobinson.com and I've got a substack, calvinrobinson.substack.com. And more's coming in the future, so watch this space. God bless everybody. Thank you. There you go, folks. There you go. We talk even to the other side on this podcast because uh, we do believe that is ultimately what any democracy needs, the common space, the commonwealth, where people of different views can come and commune and at least agree to disagree, but also to listen to each other. Take care, look after yourselves. This has been me, Royful Brown, on Mid-Atlantic. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.